Merry Christmas. I sincerely hope you've had a chance during the season to gather together, to feast with loved ones, to celebrate with family and friends. This really is a unique time to be able to get together and uh, form lasting memories, to reflect upon what matters most, spending time with loved ones, expressing generosity, gratitude, and enjoying the many good gifts our Heavenly Father has given to us, like Stephen mentioned, all the sweets that we get to eat. Uh, for the first time this year, I got to try Turkish Delight, which is pretty good. I had read about it before. I hadn't actually gotten to try it. Good. And these really are things that are enjoyable gifts from our Heavenly Father, things that are good, that we should truly slow down and enjoy. But what is Christmas really all about? There are two... That is the right answer. Amen. <laughs> there, there are... That's brilliant. There are two parallel seasons that happen this time of year. And unfortunately, they're both called Christmas. It can be confusing. There's a secular, civil, non-religious holiday. And then there's a Christian holy day. And it gets confusing because they're both called Christmas and they both have a lot in common. But sometimes they get sort of smushed together and confused to the point where we it's hard to really tell what's going on. What is the meaning of what's happening? The secular Christmas doesn't really mention the birth of Jesus unless it's a blurry vision of him as someone who would be born to be a great example of sacrificial love. The focus really is more about the inherent goodness of humanity, that deep down we're all good folks, that even the smallest cold heart can grow big and warm if somebody's willing to put in the work to just stop being so grinchy, that we each have the power within us to change the world. But at the same time, if your good deeds don't outweigh your bad deeds, you'll end up on the naughty list and get coal in your stocking. But the Christian holiday of Christmas is really less about humanity's unlimited potential and really more about the good news of God's supernatural activity. In the Middle Ages, the word mass referred to a religious feast, a day in honor of a specific person. And so that explains what the M-A-S ending on Christmas means. Christmas is a holy day set apart in honor of Christ. And by Christ, we don't mean sort of a cloudy concept of a sweet, silent baby who just wants everyone to be sweet and nice to each other. We mean Jesus Christ, the Savior of mankind, as our Nicene Creed puts it, summarizing Scripture, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence of the Father, who came down from heaven, who became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made human. So this Christian holiday of Christmas is really about celebrating and remembering what God has done in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is truly God and so could conquer death and sin by his power and is truly human, that he might die in our place in the weakness of his flesh. Now, almost anyone would be willing to celebrate a secular Christmas about fuzzy warm feelings and generosity. That's pretty easy to believe in. But there are fewer who are willing to see and embrace 
the Christian Christmas that celebrates that God himself has taken on human flesh for us and for our salvation. I sympathize with that famous lamenting prophet, Charlie Brown, when he asked, Isn't there anyone who understands what Christmas is all about? Like Linus, we're going to put the spotlight on Luke chapter 2 this morning to focus in on concentrate on what Christmas is all about. I submit that the big idea of this passage for us this morning is this. We need supernatural revelation to truly appreciate Christmas. We need supernatural revelation to truly appreciate Christmas. And I'll have just two points. We'll talk about the mundaneness, the ordinariness of Christ's birth and how that calls for heavenly joy. Those will be the two points as we walk through this together. But let's pray. Mighty God, these shepherds of old that we've read about this morning were full of your praises, saying that all that they had seen and heard was mirrored by what they had been told. And so we ask that you would move among us now by your Holy Spirit, that we too might hear and experience the wonder and the joy of the living word as we seek to welcome the written word into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Point one. Christ's birth was mundane. Mundane. Jesus was born in an ordinary, common, earthly way. His conception, of course, was supernatural through the work of the Holy Spirit, shadowing, overshadowing Mary. But his birth, the process of his birth, was quite normal. Uh, He would have been gestating for nine months and was born like any other human. And that's what mundane means here, common or ordinary. In fact, some of the details about Jesus' birth seem kind of dull. You notice in verse 2 that it includes the name of the governor of Syria at the time. Uh, That little detail surely would have been left on the cutting room floor if this was going to be made into a Hallmark movie. Why would that little detail be included in this narrative of the Savior? Well, it's there for good reason. Luke, the disciple who wrote this gospel, was very much interested in doing his homework. You can see at the beginning of chapter 1, he's intending to give an orderly account of the details of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And little details like this help us see that Jesus' birth wasn't just a fairy tale. This story is not once upon a time. This story is at one point in human history where this very specific thing happened and this particular guy was a governor of this particular place. This is placed in human history. Some of the other details of how Jesus are born are even actually a little bit aggravating. If you really consider the process here, I mean, what's more frustrating than having to travel 90 miles without a car, mind you, in the third trimester of pregnancy to register for a census? Well, how about once you get there, you you don't have anywhere to lay down this newborn baby? That's frustrating. Even these first seven verses of this miraculous event, it all just seems so plain and ordinary and normal and frustrating. The gospel account isn't somebody's inspired thoughts about a baby who's named Jesus. It's an account of an event which took place in ordinary human history. And it is an event that would have looked very ordinary to us had we been there to witness it that first night. 
Joseph took his betrothed, Mary, betrothed like they're engaged to be married, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Bethlehem was his hometown, and so he's going back there where his family probably owned land to be counted in the Caesar's census. And according to the marital customs of the day, we're sort of reading between the lines here, we assume that Joseph and Mary must have been married while they were there in Bethlehem. You'll notice in our ESV translation that we've read this morning, and most other translations actually, it says that there was no room, quote, in the inn. One commentator helpfully showed that the word here does not necessarily mean an inn like a holiday inn. It's not a business necessarily. It's not a motel. It's just a place where someone stays for a period of time. We often picture the scene, though, like they show up at a hotel, right? Sorry, no vacancy. Go sleep in the barn. But this word actually simply means a place to stay. Uh, Joseph likely would have taken Mary into his family home after they were married. Uh, Perhaps they had a marital chamber, a guest room that they were staying in that was probably small. And while they were there, the time came for Mary to give birth, verse 6 says. So perhaps they're there for some time. She's full term now. And she gives birth to the child and she puts him in a manger, which sounds really strange to us. But since Bethlehem was a farming town, it would have been fairly ordinary. Well, not ordinary to put a baby in a manger, but to have a manger in a living space. Farmhouses would have kept some animals in the same part of the house where the people slept. And there would have been long troughs that would hold food for these animals to eat overnight, and those were called mangers. And since this room was small, the place that they were staying, their guest room perhaps, that space was too small, so she laid that newborn down in one of those mangers. So that's the scene. Fairly ordinary, a little cramped for space, but there is notice there is no red carpet, and there is no golden bassinet. It probably would not have been a silent night. I assume that Jesus would have cried like any other human baby. You could have walked right past that house that night and had no idea that human history was, at that point, turning like a hinge, undergoing the most dramatic turning point it had ever known. Other folks in the town, oblivious to what was happening there, would have carried on life as normal, eating their sugar plums, watching NFL. I don't know what they did back then. The prophet Isaiah, speaking of this Messiah who had just been born, said, quote, that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. We can kind of see that playing out even this morning, can't we? There are hundreds of gospel-preaching churches here in the Phoenix Valley, gathering here together on the Lord's Day to celebrate the birth of Christ, But there are far more people outside of churches this morning in Phoenix than there are inside of churches. So why do you think that is? Some people might not have heard what the gospel actually is. We need to be open to that thing. We sort of sometimes assume, at least I do, we assume far too often that everyone we interact with has already heard this good news and has either accepted or rejected it. That's not always the case. Maybe they simply need to hear the gospel to be invited in. Others, however, might have heard it and just been like, I don't really get it. A baby was born. Big deal. I don't understand what gets you all so excited about Jesus. They might look at Jesus' church in the same way that they would look at Jesus' birth. 
yeah, you all get together and you sing songs, you pray, uh, you eat little wafers, you drink the juice, you listen to sermons. Big deal. I don't understand. I, I mean, I would gladly come here this morning to, to sit in because it's Christmas, something I feel like I should do. But I don't understand why people would come back week after week. It seems all so ordinary and normal. And in a sense, they're right. The things that we do together is, are, are ordinary. They are normal. There's nothing supernatural when you sort of look at the surface of the events. But for those who understand the supernatural, spiritual significance of the ordinary activities that we engage in at church, they recognize that something extraordinary is actually happening here. Through the ordinary, even lowly ministry of this church, Christ himself grants mercy and grace. He enlightens our minds. He engages our wills. He calls and justifies those who know themselves to be sinners. He sanctifies his adopted children. He provides a peace that others can't understand. And through the ordinary means of his church, he brings his adopted brothers and sisters safely home. This is a beautiful, blood-bought, but ordinary Christian church. And no doubt some of you who have come here this morning just because it feels like the right thing to do on Christmas. But why are people coming back? Why would they come in the middle of the week? Why do they gather together in homes, uh, even apart from Sunday? What is it? Maybe the whole concept of the birth of Jesus seems like a mundane, ordinary, uneventful story that people are simply overreacting about. But when you've rightly understood what the birth of Christ means, it should stir up heavenly joy. Let's keep noticing in verses 8 through 14, the second point, Christ's birth calls for heavenly joy. So now the angel appears to these shepherds, and these shepherds now are explicitly told about the significance of this seemingly ordinary event of Jesus' birth. And note that flesh and blood did not reveal it to them, but God's angelic messengers. And if you read a little bit further down in verse 16, it says, let's go see this thing that God has made known to us. While countless people would have shuffled by the home with a manger in it, completely oblivious to the happenings inside, these shepherds, uh, aside from Mary and Joseph, we can assume, were the only witnesses who would have truly appreciated what was happening there. These shepherds out there minding their own business, watching over a herd of sheep at night, witnessed an apocalypse, a, a revealing, a pulling back of the curtain so that the kingdom of God could be seen as it truly is. It's a supernatural revelation. And this really is the first Noel, the first proper evangelistic message following the birth of Christ. The angels bring that good news, which is the gospel, that Christ the Lord was born and is born for all the people as a savior. But note that without this message from God, these shepherds would have wandered past the manger without knowing what was happening. In fact, Jesus' birth would have appeared so unremarkable that the angels had to tell them a sign. This is what you're looking for. Look for that baby who's wrapped up in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. That's how you'll know it's him. Or maybe this is where you would want to jump off the train. 
You might be willing to admit that there was an historical person who was named Jesus. He was born in Bethlehem. Yes, I get it. Sure. But then once we start talking about something like this, something that's supernatural, that there is a miraculous message from God through these angelic beings, well, you start to tune out a little bit, perhaps. To think that God communicates us in a way that we can understand and in a way that requires a response from us might be too much for you. Miracles can't be real. Well, and unless you think that creation created itself, you must believe in a creator. And that creator must have acted above the laws of nature when he created all things, including those laws of nature. And so if he's done it before, nothing would stop him from being able to do it again. And that's what we find in the event of Christ's birth. The creator, who is separate from creation, who is over and above creation, has entered into creation itself. The message of Christmas, really, is that heaven has broken into earth. At Jesus' conception, when the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, at Jesus' birth, when human eyes could finally at last behold the invisible God, and at his birth announcement to the shepherds, when an angel of the hosts of heaven clearly interpret for us, for them, the significance of this ordinary event. Jesus is a supernatural person. I understand that that is more difficult to believe than that he is a sweet, silent baby, but there simply is no avoiding it. Jesus is God in the flesh. This is the Christian understanding of Christmas. But why shepherds? Why would shepherds be the first recipients of this message? Some commentators have suggested that shepherds were on the outskirts of society, perhaps the lowest class. I tried to look into that, couldn't find any evidence to support that. We don't really need to overthink it, I don't think. It's fitting and appropriate that shepherds here in the city of David, who was himself a shepherd, would be introduced to the good shepherd. Throughout the Old Testament, God himself describes himself as a shepherd. All the way back in Genesis, Jacob says that God has been his shepherd all his life. Moses, of course, shepherds Israel out of Egypt towards their own land. And of course, King David guided Israel as their shepherd. But after David died, the leaders of God's people came who were bad shepherds. And so God promised that he himself was going to come and be a shepherd and get rid of those terrible, selfish shepherds. Ezekiel 34, 15 and 16 says this, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek and save the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So God promised to come and be himself, the shepherd of his sheep. So the, the work really of every shepherd who has ever existed pointed towards this shepherd. This is the culmination of every shepherding event that you've ever seen before. This is what it was pointing towards. This is what it was about. This child would be the shepherd who never abandons his sheep and who would lay down his life for their behalf to save them, to protect them. Did you notice the shepherd's response to seeing the angels uh, in verse 9? They were filled with great fear. 
or sore afraid, as the King James Version puts it. In other words, they were frightened out of their minds. Uh, They see these angels appearing, and I'm sure you can understand why they'd be afraid. This was not a common occurrence. This doesn't happen all the time. And I'm sure that the angels were terrifying to see. Uh, The way that angels are described in the Bible sounds terrifying. And then add to that the glory of the Lord now. So the glory of the Lord is shining. And in this instance, speaking about that bright, overwhelming light that often appears when God manifests his presence to human beings, great fear would be the natural response to seeing something like this. But the angel says, do not be afraid. I bring you a message of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Notice that he said, "Unto you is born this day." Christ Jesus was born to the shepherds for us and for our salvation. And so, if there was a gift tag on Christmas, it would say, "To all the people from." your creator and redeemer. Jesus Christ, the Savior, entered into the world to crush the head of the serpent, to defeat sin and death. Any fear that you have ever had has met its match in the person and work of Christ. This shepherd who has come to lay down his life for the sheep and then not just to lay it down, but to take it up again. And he then ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he will return in that same body that he was laying in, in that manger, to judge the living and the dead, to complete what he has begun. Great fear is the natural response to seeing this angelic messenger. But rightly understood, their angelic message brought great joy. So great fear is the natural response, but great joy is the informed response. And they got a glimpse of what the throne room of God must have been like when the heavenly hosts appear, which just sort of refers to God's army of angels appearing in the sky. Not just a few of them, but a multitude, a plethora even. Praising God, glorifying God. Just imagine the sound of God's angelic army appearing in the night sky. God's heavenly army filling the sky, praising God, declaring a message of peace upon the earth. Peace between a holy God and a sinful humanity could finally and fully be achieved. You may have noticed that no one in here this morning flew in on wires. We don't have any live animals. We don't have any technological spectacles to attract your attention. Not that there's anything wrong with it. But our earnest prayer is that you would look beyond this ordinary service on this holy day with an eye of faith through the revelation of God's word by his Holy Spirit hear this invitation to come come to the manger find the great joy and the peace that passes all understanding the revelation that Christ was the son of God born to redeem humanity and bring salvation is something that simply goes beyond the natural world It can only be really fully understood through divine intervention. While the actual event of Christ's birth may have appeared ordinary, its true significance requires supernatural revelation, which is what we have in his word by his spirit. Let's pray now. 